0: I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. Okay, so here we are today on our third take. (laughs) (laughs) You've got it this time. Um... Which is just, I want it, like, I want it to be a certain way. Obviously, we talked about that. So, I decided that the best place to start this podcast would be with Jane. Jane Louise Mixer was born on February 23rd in the year 1946 in Muskegon, Michigan. She was the second child of Daniel and Marion Mixer, and she was born less than two years after her parents had her sister Barbara, and she would eventually be followed by a younger brother. So, she and her sister grew up very close, sharing a bedroom. Each girl saw the best in each other. Like, they didn't always get along because they were sisters who were really close in age.
1: Yeah, I can relate to that.
0: And I live with two little girls really close in age who share a bedroom.
1: You can definitely relate to that. Who,
0: very similarly, it seems like Barbara and Jane kind of had, like, opposite personalities, which is definitely the girls. Like, they were a little bit jealous of each other's best qualities. Like, they kind of aspired to be more like each other. While in high school, Jane seemed a bit shy and uncertain of herself. She wanted to be more, though. She wanted to be more intelligent, more well-spoken, more beautiful than she was. She would write about it in her journal around that time. She wrote, You know, for a world that demands direction, I certainly have none. Which is very relatable. So true. That's how she felt as a young teenager. That's how I feel as an almost 30-year-old.
1: Yep. Same here.
0: After graduating high school in 1964, Jane began attending college at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where her older sister was already a student. It seems that after she arrived at U of M, she really found some direction and began to find herself as cliche as that is it's one of those things as you get older you're like i feel like i'm really figuring out who i am she had reached that point i feel like that's what college is for though yeah that's i would i would imagine yeah i know i'm like
1: i'm just looking (laughs) off into the distance or like if i had gone to college (laughs) i would find myself
0: (laughs) life yes exactly (laughs) jane joined the debate team and became very involved in the political scene which was during the 1960s i love
1: a woman who can argue (laughs) i do it just makes me happy inside
0: (laughs) it's a nice quality to have sometimes it is she argued for civil rights and even traveled to campaign for political candidates that she believed in which usually were of the democratic persuasion In 1966, during her sophomore year of college, she met an older student who led discussion in her macroeconomics class. His name was Phil, and Jane would stay after class to ask questions make sure she understood the subject matter. um, Because doing well was really, really important to her. And it seemed like it definitely started out as just trying to get a grasp on the subject matter.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure she asked him a lot of questions.
0: Um... But Phil definitely began to realize that he liked Jane, and it seems like he might have been the one to get feelings first. Oh, okay. Um, At this point, Jane had already decided that she was going to spend the following year abroad, and she spent the year studying in France. In letters between her and her sister, it seems like Jane was really, really happy during her time in France. Um, Other than that, there doesn't seem to be much more to her trip. She went. She loved it. She came home. In her book, Jane, A Murder by Maggie Nelson, who is Jane's niece, she said that the only thing that her family would tell her about Jane's trip to France was that Jane returned smoking cigarettes (laughs) which i i like that's like it's the 60s it's it's fancy like you just spent a year in france you come back like it was beautiful do you you think it was like the short cigarettes cigarettes? or like the
1: long cigarettes (laughs) the ones that had like this were they cigarette holders i'm not quite sure but damn that's hot really
0: (laughs) upon her arrival back in michigan jane and phil picked up where they'd left off and they began an actual relationship by this point, though, Jane's relationship with her parents was not doing well. Uh, her mother, it seems like that relationship had always been kind of a struggle, um, based on journal entries from Jane's younger years, where she just vents, vents about, about her, her mom, mom. Yeah, I can. As almost every, every teenage yeah, girl has done. Definitely. But by the end of her sophomore year, Jane was told that she was no longer welcome at home, oh. which is heavy.
1: Yeah, because they're, like, they always seem so family-oriented.
0: I didn't find any source that stated directly why or if there was a specific incident that triggered this. Just essentially the relationship had disintegrated where they did not agree with each other's opinions. They were very much polar opposites when it came to, like, political beliefs.
1: That'll do it.
0: (laughs) And they were not happy with Phil as Jane's choice of partner. They didn't like that Phil was older, they didn't like that Phil was liberal, and they didn't like that Phil was Jewish. (sighs) I mean, Uh,
1: that's rude.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Jane continued her relationship with Phil anyway, because those aren't good enough reasons to not like somebody. Exactly. And in the spring of 1969, a lot of changes were underway in her life. She had finished her senior year at U of M and applied to law school and for a fellowship. She had made it into law school, and received the fellowship, which would help her financially, and it meant that she would be doing some work in a public interest position after graduation. Phil had accepted a job in New York, and Jane was planning to transfer to either NYU or Columbia for law school because they had recently become engaged, so she was gonna move with him to New York. I love that. So her life was just, it was set up. Like, she's sitting there being like, should I go to NYU for law school or Columbia for law school? With my, like, love, who's older and he's moving to New York because he just got a job and we're going to get married. Like, what a lovely time.
1: It is. And then also, like, just being a woman who got accepted through that fellowship to help pay for a huge part of your schooling, that must have been huge, too. You don't have to work as many jobs and you can be the lawyer that you want to (laughs) be. Or whatever.
0: (laughs) During her spring break that year in 1969, Jane decided that she was going to travel back home to Muskegon to see her parents. She had recently missed her mother's birthday and she wanted to visit in person to apologize as well as announce her engagement and her plans to move. Jane didn't expect the news to go very well with her family. She wanted to go by herself without Phil to kind of get through the shock, get through their disappointment, wait until things settled, and then Phil was going to join a few days later. It seems to me like this was Jane really trying to say, this is who I am. I'm not changing, but I'm also trying to, like, extend an olive branch and be like. Yeah,
1: she wants her family included into her wedding, I'm sure.
0: I'm doing this new part of my life. I don't want to keep not being welcomed home and, like. Right. So she, And she was trying to go about it in the best way she could to be like, I'll go by myself. You come a few days later. So in the basement of the student union building of the U of M law quad, there was a ride board where students would go and post requests for rides to wherever they needed. It was essentially Uber before Uber existed. And Jane left a note on the ride board that read would appreciate hearing from anyone who might be driving to Muskegon anytime Thursday, March 20th, followed with her name and her dorm room info. A man named David Johnson responded, I wasn't sure before if he had left a note on the ride board or if he called her or if he sent a note to her dorm. According to the red parts by Maggie Nelson, which goes into, like, the trial, she makes a comment at some point stating that Jane arranged the ride with David Johnson over the phone. Okay. So I think that he got her dorm number from her dorm info and called her. Makes sense. She would be accepting a ride from David Johnson to Muskegon, who planned to leave at 6.30 that evening. Phil had talked with Jane that evening around 6.15, and Jane was still waiting for her ride to show up. It was a little bit before he would be there. So far, things were in the clear. At 6.30, a nearby fraternity house on campus received a call from a girl who identified herself as Jane, and she was looking for David Johnson. David Johnson was a member of the fraternity, but the person who answered the phone told Jane that they believed she had the wrong number or the wrong David Johnson because he had plans that night and they did not involve driving across the state to Muskegon to bring Mm -hmm. some random girl to her parents' house. Phil called her later around 7 and didn't get an answer, so he just assumed by that point that her ride had picked her up, and he continued on with his evening. At home, the mixers waited for Jane to arrive, expecting her around 9 o'clock, but her arrival time came and went with no sign or word from Jane. Around 10.30, when she still hadn't arrived, her father went out, looking for her, he traveled across I-96, which spans from the west side of the state to the east side of the state, and it would have been the path that Jane and her driver would be taking.
1: I love that, like, sentiment that her dad was, you know, willing to do that. He's like, I don't know if she's hitchhiking, but I'm also like, he doesn't know what car she could have been in either.
0: Yeah, I think that he knew she was getting a ride. Yeah. But it was just like, I don't know where she is. There weren't cell phones, obviously. Yep. So the best thing he could do was, I'm going to drive this long stretch of road that she would be on and, and hope for, for the best. any sign of trouble. Yeah. So Daniel Mixer was looking for any sign of, like, a car accident to explain why Jane hadn't arrived home yet. I think the weather that night was kind of bad, so they were like, maybe that slowed them down or caused issues. But when he hit Lansing, which was about the halfway point, he turned around and headed back to Muskegon because it was like, if they hadn't made it this far, like... Yeah. I don't know where they would be Um, when he arrived home after midnight he put in a call to police to report his daughter missing the police took the information and then Jane's name and description was put into the law enforcement information network and this meant that her info would be sent all over the state to be on the lookout for jane or just a woman matching her description jane's parents in the meantime contacted phil to clarify that jane had never arrived home Phil went over to Jean's dorm in the morning and identified himself as her boyfriend. He was given a key to check on her. She wasn't in her room and nothing was out of place. Everything seemed to be fine. So this morning, Friday, March 21st, a young teen boy was walking down a rural road to his bus stop in Denton Township, which is about 15 miles east of Ann Arbor, when he found a gift bag and some typewritten papers in a folder near the cemetery on the road. Inside the bag was a gift and a card. And the card read, Dearest mom, sorry I'm late for your birthday, but in 100 years, you'll never know the difference. And the card was signed, Janie. And I think her note, like, very much shows her personality. Yeah. I think that I have a similar, like, sense of humor. Oh, definitely. I could see you putting that joke. It's (laughs) kind of, like, nihilistic. Sorry I missed it, but in 100 years, we'll all be dead. And it is what it is. It
1: just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs)
0: So the boy decided to bring the bag back home to show his mother and after showing her what he'd found, his mother sent him back on his way so that he wouldn't miss the school bus and to me this is like, get your ass back to school. Yeah, like that's <laughs> cool that you found this random thing, you're gonna miss the bus, like go get on the bus. Yep. After he walked out the door, she noticed a still slightly sticky stain of something on the bag and when she looked closer, it looked like blood. And so she started to get anxiety and she decided to take off after her son to make sure that he was okay and that she didn't just send him out to cross paths with something or someone sketchy. Yep. So she got in her car and started down the road and near the cemetery where her son had found the bag, she noticed a figure on the ground not far inside the fence of the cemetery. She pulled into the cemetery to get a closer look. Um, I believe she got out of her car and approached... And she saw a woman laying on a grave, face up, and clearly dead. She hurried out of the cemetery in a panic, and after she made sure that her son was no longer on the road and that he'd made it to the bus, one source says that she went home to her sleeping husband and they called the police together, but I've seen more sources that say that she drove a block or two to her sister's house and that they called the police. But either way, she found somebody so she wasn't alone and they called the police together. Smart. The officers who responded that morning had seen the report on the missing girl from U of M who didn't make it home to Muskegon the night before. And with the card being signed from Janie and the missing persons report, they quickly had an idea of
1: who it was. was.
0: But they sent out a request for the most recent yearbook from U of M so they could look up Jane Mixer's picture and kind of make a rough identification, like temporary identification. The woman's body was laid out on the grave nearest the fence and the entrance of the cemetery, and her raincoat had been laid on top of her, partially covering her body. Nearby was her overnight case and a copy of the book Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Her skirt was bunched up, and her pantyhose had been rolled down just slightly, and she had a stocking that was tied tightly around her neck, but she also had gunshot wounds to the head. Hmm. Police were able to make the loose identification of her from the yearbook, and it was Jane Mixer. Officers were dispatched to notify Jane's family, and her body was transferred- transported to the Washtenaw County Medical Examiner. Dr. Robert Hendricks was able to determine that Jane had died sometime between midnight and 2 a.m. that morning of March 21st. So it would have been hours after she had been picked up by the driver. Who- probably wasn't david johnson but it's still to this day not there's no clear answer of what happened or where she was in those like six hours
1: i hope that she fought with everything she could that's for sure
0: her cause of death was from the two shots to the head made with a 22 caliber gun one shot had entered from the like front side And one shot had entered from the back. The ligature, which was the stocking, had been tied post-mortem. So after she had died. Yep. Um, It was also determined that the stocking was probably not Jane's because of its size and the fact that she was already wearing pantyhose so she wouldn't have had stockings on as well. And it was determined that she'd been killed at another location and her body abandoned in the cemetery due to the lack of blood at the body's site and the positioning where Jane was found. It was like she had been laid out. There didn't seem to be any sign or evidence of sexual assault. Back at the cemetery, the police weren't left with much evidence. There were tire tracks that could have been left by the woman who pulled in and found Jane or a police vehicle as well as a partial shoe print that police believed might have been one of their own. Which is rough. It seems like they just weren't prepared right, to deal with the situation. And uh, I couldn't find anything that said whether or not they tried to, like, determine or rule out if it was their shoe prints or their tire prints. Alright,
1: guys, just take your boots out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but police spoke with a woman who found Jane and the woman's husband, and they said that they saw a car, and it was a vehicle, leaving the cemetery around midnight that they said was a white station wagon. And then some young people in the area said that they had seen a green station wagon circling the cemetery the night before around dusk. Hmm. Which also doesn't super line up with the timing. Like the white station wagon that they saw around midnight would work with the timing of like when Jane died. But the dusk one doesn't fit. Because dusk would be when, like, the sun's going down. Right. And they believe that she died between midnight and 2 a.m. So it'd be weird to just be, like, driving around this cemetery with her, just, like, sitting in the car. Like, what are we doing?
1: Yeah. I don't- I- yeah, I couldn't imagine why.
0: So police arrived at Jane's parents and told them that they believed they had found Jane, but that they would need to come to Ypsilanti to get the positive idea of Jane from family members. After viewing his daughter's body, Daniel Mixer asked his older daughter, Barbara, if Jane had recently dyed her hair red. She hadn't, it was just stained from blood.
1: That's so heartbreaking.
0: Phil was immediately brought in for questioning, and he was told by the police of Jane's murder. Phil was questioned thoroughly, and at some point early on in the investigation, Jane's father told police that he suspected Phil... But he didn't seem to have any substantial reason as to why he suspected Phil, other than he believed Jane was killed by somebody she knew. And to be fair to him, like if your daughter's just been murdered, it's not that far of a reach to be like, it's it her could partner, have been her boyfriend.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Everybody suspects the partner first, or looks into the significant other as a suspect. It's just kind of like protocol.
0: Yeah, and I can't imagine too just how your brain works after you find out. Yeah, I mean, I I don't. Your child's been murdered. Like, I can't imagine that you're in any state to be like thoroughly thinking things through.
1: No, I agree, and I'm sure that like he didn't know any like very many people that Jane was friends with in the college. So he he was just just thinking.
0: Um, Phil seemed reasonably distraught, and he agreed to and passed a polygraph, and he offered as much help and information as he could, and he was cleared pretty quickly. He didn't seem like he was their guy. And he's never been looked back at again. Like he was cleared, he didn't do it. He's... I
1: totally believe that like he didn't do it. I mean I I mean, wasn't the catch twenty two the book that he gave her?
0: Yeah, he had lent it to her to read, um, over her like spring break.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and he also he traveled back to Michigan for part of her trial. He I think had to testify, but he like he willingly came and gave his testimony um not her trial obviously but her yeah. alleged killer's trial so jane's dorm room was searched and on her desk by the phone they found a phone book open to the j page and a check mark next to a phone number for david johnson at the fraternity house and a note that said david johnson leaving six thirty. so naturally finding david johnson was the next goal police busted into the fraternity house on the night of march 21st without any warning
1: those frat boys must have been like so scared
0: <laughs> just... They, yeah <laughs> just hanging out and then bam I hide the weed I hide the kids <laughs> <laughs> their 1969 weed <laughs> yeah um. dake <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to give david johnson a heads up that the police were looking for him they wanted him to just be taken by surprise Um, after identifying all the people at the house and determining that none of them were David, police asked them if they knew where David was. And David was performing in a play at that moment. And the people were asked if they knew where David had been the night before. And they did, because he had been performing in the same play the night before. So, and that was during the time that Jane would have been getting a ride and being murdered.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty solid alibi.
0: They were asked if they knew anyone named Jane Mixer, and one person was able to tell the police that they had been the one to answer the call the night before from a girl who said her name was Jane and was looking for David Johnson, and they had been the ones to tell her, I think you have the wrong number and the wrong person. Police questioned the David Johnson, who appeared to have no connection to Jane, and he had a solid alibi, and he was cleared. At that point, police didn't have a lot left in terms of direction of the investigation with anyone close to the family or the case. And they continued to investigate David Johnson's in the area, but they strongly believed that that was just a name that was given. It was probably fake. Whoever used it, whoever picked up Jane just used it to hide their identity. Daniel Mixer continued to theorize that possibly an ex-girlfriend of Phil's had been jealous enough to kill Jane, or that someone had hired a hitman to kill Jane because of her work in the civil rights movement, but she was more, I think, of, like, secretarial, like, making flyers. I don't think that she was, like, a huge key player target. in the, in the yeah. civil rights movement.
1: Those debating um, skills will get you.
0: Her family was told to keep a close eye on everyone who attended Jane's funeral on March 24th because they believed it was highly likely that the person who killed Jane might attend because that happens. hmm But nothing panned out from that. In the following days, the mixers had the misfortune of discovering that prank calls are apparently common after an unusual death or murder. They would receive calls at all hours from people just making unpleasant comments like there was one woman who would repeatedly call and pretend to be crying and in a high-pitched voice say boo-hoo-hoo where's Janie?"
1: yeah i would like to beat the
0: fuck out of that person (laughs) yeah it's horrifying and it hurts my stomach and i hope that person had a bad life
1: yeah i mean (laughs) yeah i I definitely like some kind of karma because what the Break, frack snake snack like why what makes you be like yep I'm gonna call up these parents who just had a daughter horrifically like taken away from them and And yeah and taunt them yeah like that is so messed up in the head that's rude if you're listening to this that's rude (laughs)
0: that's rude I hope you got the help you obviously need yes
1: but I'm not afraid to throw these hands (laughs) (laughs) that moment would be like an old oh, lady you so i'll just take her jello <laughs> where's your jello sorry <laughs> where's your jello i'm i'm not a good person either <laughs>
0: I just imagine, like, nurses and a nursing home, like, you, don't, you need to leave, like, to you. Yeah, and for they just sure. just show up to harass this, like, <laughs> random woman.
1: Like, we don't know how you found her, but, like, <laughs> can you stop stealing her food? Like, she needs to eat.
0: So <laughs> the only thing
1: she can swallow.
0: <laughs> Ooh, <my God. laughs> the police in the area were not new to investigating the murders of young college women. Jane's murder was actually the third murder of a co-ed in the area within the last two years. So Mary Flesher, who was a 19-year-old student at Eastern University in Ypsilanti, which is just a few miles east of U of M, had gone missing in July of 1967, and her body was found in August. Mary had been brutally beaten and stabbed, and there is reason to believe that the killer had returned to her body after they'd left her on an ab- abandoned farmland. Mm. A year later, in June 1968, Joan Shell, a 20-year-old art student at Eastern, went missing after she accepted a ride from some young men when she was hitchhiking. A week later, her body was found off the side of a road by construction workers, and she had also been beaten and stabbed, and her miniskirt had been hiked up around her neck post-mortem, which Jane, having the stocking tied around her neck, seemed to, like, mirror that. Yep. But I don't think that Joan's skirt had been, like, tied. It seems like it was just pushed up. All three bodies of the women were found within a few miles of each other. And the day after Jane Mixer's funeral, another body of a young girl was found. And this was 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton, who had gone missing while hitchhiking near the Eastern Michigan campus. And she had been horribly beaten. Yeah. Three more bodies of young women were found in April 1969, June 1969, and August 1969, all within a 15-mile radius of each other. All these three had been beaten and stabbed, with one specifically also having been shot with a 22 caliber gun.
1: Besides Jane?
0: Besides Jane. Okay. Which Jane had been shot with a 22 caliber yep. But it was obviously assumed that Jane Mixer's death was one in a series of murders committed by the same person or people. Serial killer. At first, they thought they were separate, but when Marilyn Skelton's body was found the day after Jane's funeral, the police kind of were all like, I don't think these are separate. Good for them. When an Eastern student was arrested in connection with the last murder in August of 1969, the murders of the young women in the area stopped. John Norman Collins was a 22-year-old Eastern Michigan student, and he was charged with the murder of the final victim, but was suspected in the murder of all seven girls in Michigan, as well as a girl in California. Over the years, there was speculation about how and if Jane's murder fit in with the other murders of the Michigan girls. Her death was obviously still horrible, but it was significantly less brutal, and there were a lot of details like how her body had been disposed of that didn't line up with the other murders, I'm not gonna say that the murderer of Jane was, like, more caring or, like, remorseful or gentle, but they, like, laid her out and positioned her, whereas the other girls were, like, dumped off the side of the road.
1: Yeah, I, from what I remember is not many had been, like, covered up with articles of their own clothing either and... I mean,
0: and I don't at all think that that's like caring because I don't think it's like you can't shoot somebody in the head and like, murder uh, yeah, them and then still be care. Like, I cared. So I put their jacket over them. Like, I'm a no, nice guy. No, you didn't guy. care. You just have weird psychological issues where, yeah, the other women had just been thrown away. Yeah. Another detail for me is that most of the other women were picked up while they were either hitchhiking or out walking. And they were victims of immediate opportunity. Like, he saw them. He picked them up. But whoever killed Jane had a build-up to this crime. She wasn't an immediate victim, and she hadn't been beaten or stabbed.
1: Yeah, it's a very weird weird
0: difference. To just suddenly, like, go away, like, to move away from your M.O.
1: Maybe, like, I don't know. Like, I, like you said, like, I don't want to really say, like, he was caring or, like, had more respect because like he wouldn't have killed her if he had any of those things but i wonder like what they had talked about in the previous hours before her death yeah that made him possibly change the the way that he would usually do things yeah
0: And that's if it was John Norman Collins.
1: That's true. If it was.
0: And you also have to think, too, even if it's, like, no matter who killed her, she was on, like, a debate team. Like, she was very opinionated. Like, they were together for hours. Like, I'm sure that she...
1: Had, like, an inkling?
0: Had all sorts of, like, arguments for her life. Because I feel like she had to have realized pretty quickly that they weren't headed to Muskegon. Because they were only 15 miles in the opposite direction... They were 15 miles east. Where right. They should have been heading west.
1: Yeah, she's like. Hmm. So she's like,
0: we're going in the wrong direction. And Look, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. So in 2002, Sergeant Eric Schroeder was looking into cold cases and felt that the difference in M.O. between Jane's murder and the others was enough to warrant looking back into her case. Evidence that was taken from the crime scene over 30 years earlier was sent to the Michigan State Police Lab in Lansing, Michigan for testing, and in 2004, they got a match. Three spots of sweat on Jane's pantyhose matched to a man named Gary Lederman. Lederman lived in Ann Arbor in 1969 as a 26-year-old traveling pharmaceutical salesman. In 2004, he was a retired nurse with a family living in Goebbels, Michigan. In 2001, Gary had been prescribed painkillers to help with what I believe was kidney stones. And he became addicted to the painkillers, which I have no judgment for like yeah it messes a lot of people up yes it does um but he ended up stealing a stack of blank prescription forms from the hospital that he worked at in kalamazoo Uh, he was caught and he pled guilty to illegally obtaining painkillers he didn't have to spend any time in jail or prison as this was his first offense but he took part in a rehab program and he had to submit his dna as part of a ruling that had gone through just days before requiring anyone with a felony to submit their dna so, he gave a saliva swab, and that was sent to the Michigan State Police Lab in Lansing to be processed. I also thought I found out, I thought it was interesting, as part of his rehab, he had to keep, like, an emotion journal.
1: Oh, that's good! Yeah,
0: like, it seems like the rehab that he went to was very... The Like, yeah, like, meant to try to help rehabilitate people and not just, like, that's punish funny. people, like how prison is. I can doesn't. appreciate
1: that, because, yeah, they're, Prison
0: they're... doesn't rehabilitate anybody. That's they not don't. That's what it's about.
1: Nope.
0: Um so this was how his DNA was on file to have matched with Jane Mixer's case. He was arrested in two thousand four, and upon searching his house, police discovered Polaroid photos of an underage exchange student of the Leiterman's that was hidden in Gary's study. The girl was laying on Gary's bed exposed and seemingly unconscious. When questioned about it, the girl had no memory of the events or the photos. And Gary claims that he had discovered them in the house and put them in his study to show his wife and discuss with her how they should handle it. I also found out that supposedly his wife was on a business trip at the time. Mm. Um, And that was, like, why he said he was holding on to the photos was because he was waiting for her to get back from her trip. But it's also, like, was her being on her trip, did that give you a window of opportunity? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because
1: that's messed up. Wasn't the, like, wasn't it their bed? Like, the parents' bed? Yeah, like,
0: they could match the blanket pattern (sighs) to the parents' bed.
1: Nope.
0: So, regardless, he pled guilty to possession of child pornography in 2005 before his trial for murdering Jane. There is a slim, slim, slim chance that he did just happen upon those photos, but I don't believe that. Me neither. I'm gonna go with the unconscious child who doesn't have any memory and is like traumatized just trying to like come have a positive experience in america yeah and then had to go through this
1: Mm-hmm. and like it makes me so sad that like i mean it had to be done for there to be justice but you know this i how old was she she was like I think she was like 15 15 or yeah she just like you said wanted to come experience this a different lifestyle and then she's just being questioned over something that she literally has no recollection of but she sees herself as child pornography yeah like that is and so traumatizing like... i would if i was her parents i would be so fucking pissed <laughs> yeah. like what the fuck host parent.
0: my thing too is that this wasn't, like, a Polaroid selfie that she took of herself that no. he found where you might be able to get away with. Like, I was holding onto this to show my wife to be like, what she do you do about this?
1: She was passed out.
0: She was unconscious on your bed, sir. Like, she didn't take the photo herself. Somebody took that. Yep.
1: There's, like, there's no argument there. It's understandable why he just pled guilty without any, like, reasoning.
0: My thing to like, did they own a Polaroid? Like, I have a lot of questions.
1: That's, no. it's fair to have a lot of questions. It's I messed think, up.
0: I think that Gary had a darker side to him oh yeah this was part of that
1: if he was impulsive yeah yeah oh for sure
0: so gary insisted that he was innocent of jane's murder other than the dna evidence which was the fulcrum or focal point of the prosecution's argument they also had a handwriting analysis expert and i don't i don't believe in handwriting analysis Um, in general, let alone comparing handwriting from 30 years ago to now.
1: No, I can, I definitely can see that. Um,
0: But apparently in the basement of the student union, police had discovered Jane Mixer's name written in a phone book, and they had Gary Leiterman submit a sample of his current handwriting to compare, and the expert said that it was highly probable that Gary had written Jane's name in the phone book all those years before. Which I've seen and I've shown you the photos of the comparisons that don't look I don't,
1: yeah, no, I don't think they look anything alike either. Like, the swoops are different, so, like, I don't know what kind of certification that professional handwriting analysis man got it from, but, like, yep. it was whack. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> the defense is, like, I would like to object um, on the grounds that this evidence is whack. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> I um, could be a lawyer. <laughs>
0: I just, I don't think it's reliable evidence one way or the other, and I don't think that this type of evidence should be admissible. I can post a photo of the handwriting analysis to our Instagram page, but also, I found out when I was reading The Red Parts by Jane, not Jane, sorry. Oh,
1: Margie. Maggie. Maggie, Nelson. sorry.
0: <laughs> and I called her Jane, and she writes in the books about how often, like, her family would mess up and accidentally call her Jane, so I feel insane that I just did that. Oh. Um, But she said that the samples they used for Gary's handwriting, they took from his emotional journal, the emotion journal that he kept for rehab. And they specifically chose chunks of writing where he was like, I was so angry. The prosecution was trying to psychologically like manipulate the jury presenting evidence of like here's his handwriting analysis ignore what he's writing about just look at the handwriting but the writing is like i was so mad at her like that is
1: so messed up because mm -hmm. my handwriting changes like almost every day like depending on my mood at that time of the day so many factors in so they
0: were also trying to make him look like he was somebody with a whole lot of (sighs) pent-up anger and rage
1: rude i mean i don't really care for the guy but just Rude.
0: And Maggie Nelson in her book, she was like, that was a dirty trick.
1: Yeah. Yup.
0: Gary Lederman's roommate from 1969 was also called as a witness, and he testified that Gary owned a 22 caliber revolver in 1969, and that he had seen multiple clippings about the murders in Gary's possession, which again, like, we've obviously, this is our third time going through this, so I've, like, shared with you my opinion multiple times. I feel like, especially in Michigan, because we live here, I... I feel like there's a lot of people with 22 caliber guns. Yeah. I feel like that is not...
1: It's not uncommon. Yeah. No.
0: That's not, like, significant evidence. And I had also talked at one point with you about how I found out that they were trying to figure out if the bullets could have matched his gun that he owned. That's what I was thinking. Because there's two different types of guns, and we talked about the way that they come out, is one type comes out spiraling... uh, clockwise and the other one comes out counterclockwise yeah i think the bullets were like so distorted distorted that they weren't able to determine because they knew what type of gun he had they just but they couldn't tell the bullets that they were covered from jane's body what type of gun that came from
1: i still think it's pretty amazing that like ballistics testing was created then though that's pretty cool
0: well this was they kept the bullets oh yeah wait yeah but this is in like 2005 still cool I don't know where <laughs> the like, yeah. was in the 60s. Like, Definitely not as advanced as yeah. it was now. I also have some issues with the witness testimony because witness testimony can be uh, not great. Mm-hmm. And then also you're asking somebody to talk about what they saw 30 years earlier. I would have had clippings of the murders at this point. It's like, did he actually have, like, a weird book of clippings in his closet? Or did he just, like, keep a page and be like, that's crazy that this happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it also kind of depends on the history of, like, had he kept other murder clippings before yes. and like that isn't stated either like is he an avid collector of newspaper clippings or is this literally just like was it so just focused like, yeah was it like a weird the box of just
0: jane mixer's murder yeah none of that evidence was great but there was the dna evidence on the pantyhose the defense had an argument for that they had more DNA evidence that they wanted to discuss. The sweat droplets were the only thing tested in the Jane Mixer case. There had been a droplet of blood on her hand that was also sent into the lab in Lansing to be tested. And they got a match from that as well. The blood droplet on Jane Mixer's hand matched the DNA of a John David Rulis. John David Rulis had been arrested in 2002. After going through a divorce, he had moved back in with his elderly mother... Oh yeah. And one evening, <laughs> you're like I, I remember <laughs> one evening his mother told him he needed to stop referring to his ex-wife as a bitch. And instead of hearing that suggestion and taking it to heart and self-reflecting and being like maybe I need to not use such hurtful language, instead he beat his elderly mother to death.
1: Wow, the emotional intelligence of this man is the size of a pea.
0: So, he was required to give a swab of his DNA as well, and it was sent to the lab in Lansing, Michigan to be processed. And in the year 1969 that Jane was killed, John David Rulis was only four years old.
1: He's definitely the killer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And living in Detroit, about 40 miles away, his family was found to have no connection to Jane or Gary. The only connection was that his DNA was in the same lab at the same time that Gary's DNA was being processed and at the same time that DNA from the Mixer murder was being analyzed. So, and just to clarify, too, to show who John David Rulis is as a person, he found out, obviously, that his DNA matched to this murder that happened when he was four years old. Yeah. And he tried to say... I know information about that. I'll give you information if I can get a deal on beating my mom to death.
1: <laughs> wow. No, you don't. He's like, yeah, I remember so many things when I was four. <laughs> <sighs> I could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the lab acknowledged that in the case of the realist DNA, that there was cross-contamination with the mixer DNA. At the same time, the lab was adamant that there was no cross-contamination between gary's dna and jane's evidence
1: but you can't say that when you've already proven that there's cross-contamination in the lab no matter like you know like that just doesn't make sense to me
0: so i had found a slide from a slideshow that i'm gonna try to link i need to figure out like where the slideshow came from who made it whoever made it great job like
1: thank you for this source (laughs) yeah
0: um, because it shows, like, just over a month or two, like, when the samples arrived, like, when they were being stored there, when they were being tested. And it's just, it's the same, it's known that the samples experienced cross-contamination. So the jury deliberated for three hours before coming back and finding Gary Lederman guilty of premeditated first-degree murder. Of a murder that, like... You took only three hours to determine that he premeditated a murder thirty years ago? I don't think... Yeah. And there's, like, no solid evidence. Like, the DNA, if they hadn't been able to show that cross-contamination was happening in the lab, would have been, like, please explain, sir, how your sweat got on her pantyhose. Yeah. But they showed that, like, all the samples were in the lab at the same time, and there was cross-contamination. So even if he did kill her, and that's his sweat on there... Unfortunately, that shouldn't be admissible.
1: Mm-mm. No, I agree with you. Like they, the lab messed up on their part wholeheartedly.
0: So Jane's sister and um, Jane's sister Barbara and her niece Maggie attended the whole trial. Gary's wife attended the whole trial. Jane's dad was still alive at this time. Her mom had died by that point, but he came to certain like hearings. He wasn't able to sit for the whole thing. And the family had to, like, sit through autopsy photos of Jane. They weren't sure if Gary did it. Her dad even said that he would rather that Gary be found innocent and come up to him and be like, I killed your daughter 30 years ago, than have Gary be innocent and be found guilty. So he would rather somebody get away with his daughter's murder and, like, admit to it than be sent to prison when they're innocent yeah
1: nobody deserves to be sent to prison if they're innocent or even if there's like a possibility of their innocence
0: and the family didn't know that police were looking back into Jane's murder and they seemed like what the fuck they seemed like you're just digging up old pain for us like we have accepted that she was murdered we don't know what happened we we already accepted that but now you're just like bringing up all this fresh pain
1: because her body had to be re-exonerated, right? Is that Exhumed. Exhumed. <laughs> what was the fuck does re her,
0: her dad was, like, terrified that they were going to have to exhume her body. Yeah. Because he was like, I am not going to let them do that. Good. Um, but they didn't even put in a request. I think that part of why they showed the autopsy photos in such intensity was kind of, like, to do that. They didn't, there was n- really no need to exhume her body. This case was... Ridiculous. So in 2007, Gary filed for an appeal based on the fact that the handwriting analysis is garbage and that the DNA was contaminated. Gary and his defense hired their own expert to look at the DNA evidence, a Dr. Theodore Kessis, who claimed that he found several flaws in the testing and processing that was happening in a shared space in the lab. Gary's appeal was denied. In October of 2021, Washtenaw County announced that they would be creating a wrongful convictions unit called the conviction integrity and expungement unit its purpose is to investigate cases of people believed to have been wrongfully convicted in washtenaw county they look into science that is no longer considered credible as well as any possible police or prosecutorial misconduct that may have taken place in order to get the conviction so the washtenaw county prosecutor eli sabat specifically mentions the conviction of gary lederman and jane mixer's murder as an example of the types of claims and cases that they're going to be looking into.
1: But they didn't give him appeal.
0: He acknowledges that he himself can't say whether Gary is innocent or guilty, but he says, quote, the DNA evidence used in Lederman's trial didn't follow modern best practices. So Gary maintained his innocence in Jane's murder until he died in prison on July 4th, 2019. John Norman Collins has never confessed or discussed the possibility of him having murdered Jane Mixer, so the question still lingers of who really killed Jane because I personally don't think that John Norman Collins did it and we'll talk about him in the next episode and the listeners can kind of get an idea of what why they think and like why, yeah John like more about his crimes and I don't think that Carrie did it
1: I think so you think there's an innocent man out there who got away with murder well not yeah. an innocent man well, and that's, a yeah, guilty like, man who got away with I want with to murder. acknowledge
0: <laughs> yeah I want to acknowledge that I'm not a professional I'm just another human But I do like to observe, and I do like to analyze, and I do like to look for patterns or breaks in patterns. And I just, I don't think John Roman Collins did it. She hadn't been beaten and stabbed like the others, she hadn't been picked up off the side of the road, she hadn't been dumped on the side of the road, and her murder feels more meticulous and like planned out than that. But I also, I don't think that Gary did it. The DNA evidence for Gary was just very botched. They clearly weren't following a stable protocol for testing. And I don't, I don't think that Gary was a good man.
1: No, we definitely <laughs> I, can agree to that.
0: But yeah, I don't think he was a murderer.
1: Yeah, I don't necessarily think he deserved to die in prison.
0: He deserved time in prison. Time,
1: yeah, but not to spend the rest of his life
0: there. For something he didn't do. Yep. Obviously someone out there knows what happened to Jane. Someone out there was with her during her last hours of life. And someone out there pulled the trigger. And I think that that person managed to get away with murder twice because they got away with murder twice when John Norman Collins was blamed and people stopped looking into who killed Jane because they said yep. John did it. And then again, when DNA matched to Gary, he has like, whoever he or she has two scapegoats of people who were taking the fall for them.
1: They have a four leaf clover.
0: But I'm interested to hear in what anybody else thinks.
1: Yeah, of course. Of course.
0: Like, I know, I think you're on the same page as me where you're like, I don't think either of these people did this.
1: No, I mean, John was so brutal. So, like, he, he, oh my god. He brutalized
0: the yeah. victims. Which, like I said, we'll go over in a minute, but.
1: Yep, yeah, but, but, yeah, no, I, Jane wasn't any of that.
0: And like I said, I want to end discussing Jane because Jane has always stuck with me from the time that I first came across her case years ago when I was in high school she was so driven and so determined, and I think that the world just would have been nothing but better from her existence in it if it hadn't been cut short. I don't think she was going to do any harm. mm In Maggie Nelson's book, she includes some diary entries from Jane's journals, which I found to be very relatable, and I wanted to share just a few tidbits that stuck with me the most. These writings are from 1966, a few years before her death, and in one entry, she writes... Quote, questioning is healthy, opinions that are unstable are great, pseudo-certainty is the worst crime, nothing is absolute, no one has all the answers, pretense is hideous, this whole essay is a bunch of crap. Word. And then, to finalize, my favorite quote from one of Jane's journals is, perhaps we're all fools, none of us able to see, down with people, damn it.
1: She would have been our friend. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would have really liked Jane, I think. This is the first ending to the first Dead Endings. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed it, you can follow us on Instagram at Dead Endings Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, Dead Endings Podcast. Or you can send us an email at Dead Endings Podcast at gmail.com. All of the links to which you can find on our website, deadendings.com. You should keep listening. <laughs>